Welcome to another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church. Okay, so yeah, following on from last week's uh, I'd like to more fully address one of the questions which was put towards the panel, which is how do believers practically apply the tolerance slash intolerance perspective discussed by James? You know, we, if you remember going back to, the, um, to the, uh, the video, James at the end talked about the need for clarity, but also the need for charity. And so we're going to have a look at what that means. We're going to have a look at moving towards the Christian ethic, because we're not actually going to arrive at a full Christian ethic tonight, because... If you want to do that, then you'll need to go to Bible college for an entire semester. I'm going to squeeze this down into 40 minutes. So, uh, so needless to say that whatever I say today is a very condensed version, but I think that we can certainly move towards the Christian ethic and we can certainly move towards uh, getting something which we can practically use uh, and really goes a long way to answering that question about charity and clarity and how do we approach that. So... Uh, you know, I've had numerous conversations over the week, um, you know, with people, again, around this whole discussion topic area, you know, and I went, I was in ministering in Jinjin this morning, and uh, the Church of Jinjin sends its blessing to you, so, uh, um, so they, they're doing really great, and uh, I was at lunch with a few of the people that I knew from when I used to go to that church, and, uh, and again, lo and behold, what was the topic of conversation that came up? You know, again, it all centered around Christian ethics. And, and the question that people are wanting to know is, is really, you know, how do we come, how do we arrive at, at moral decisions? How do we arrive at decisions which are ethical, which don't compromise our, our Christian position, and yet still, on the other hand, show that grace, which is really important? Uh, you know, as, uh, as the person on, on the uh, Empower, you know, grace is empowerment. How do we do that but also maintain our stance and our um, distinction as Christians from society when society moves away from uh, what we would hold as being of value to us? So Christian ethics, big topic, short amount of time, buckle in. So... Um, I think somebody is trying to sort out some... Oh, no, here we go. Look at that. You guys, are you going to monitor the PowerPoint? Awesome. All right. You'll just have to keep pace with me. That's all right. Excellent. I don't have to look at the screen now. Brilliant. Okay. So, ethics. We're going to be discussing um, how do we make moral choices as Christians? How do we do that? And how do we move towards developing a Christian ethic? Um, Ethics are principles that guide us in how we make decisions and ethics, Christian ethics particularly, is very much wrapped up in, in the fact that we as human beings are made in the image of God. And so a lot of ethics, Christian ethics, uh, revolves around the character of God and who God is. And we know that God is a holy God, but we're also made in his image. All of mankind is made in his image. We all bear the image of God, no matter how broken that is. So all of us have some kind of part inside of us where we uh, just instinctively need to make a decision about what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. Every society in the world makes these kinds of decisions, whether they're Christian or whether they're not. So we all carry that image of God. So ethics seeks to answer the question... How should we live? How should it 
we live as human beings in the world, particularly how should we live as Christians in the world? Are you taking notes? Good. <laughs> All right. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to have a look at two main categories of ethics to begin with, which are predominantly, I think, what society would kind of hold on to, particularly the first one. And then from that, we're going to move on to developing or moving towards a Christian ethic. So the first one, teleological ethics. There we go. Look at that. Awesome. Okay, so teleological ethics. Telos is a Greek word which means the goal or the ultimate end of something. And so we get this kind of ethic looks at the ultimate goal at the end of, of our choices that we make. Uh, probably the biggest classification of this is utilitarian ethics or utilitarianism. And it's an approach to decision-making which is concerned about the greatest good for the greatest number of people. So we make our choices and we weigh up all the odds and we decide between this choice or that choice or that one. And we weigh it all up and we decide, you know what, the greatest good is going to come if I do this. And so that becomes our choice and that becomes is what's called a utilitarian ethic. So the end, the telos, justifies the means because... With utilitarian ethics, it is primarily interested in the end goal. It is not really interested too much in how you get there. So you can do something which to some people might seem a bit morally wrong, but so long as you have a good outcome, a good end, then it's the right action to take. So the end justifies the means. And this is the, the utilitarian ethics is generally speaking what the world today, our, our current climate today, really sits. Because as they try and make these, these great big uh, plans and schemes for, for humanity and governments have a look at us as a society as a whole, they have to take in the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And so this is really where ethics sits currently in our society today. With this kind of ethics, there are no universal absolutes. What do I mean by that? Uh, I'm glad you asked. It means that there, that there are no normals that are intrinsically good or that are intrinsically wrong. There is no right or wrong because depending on the outcome, the end, if the end is good, you can do something which might be seen as morally wrong so long as the end is good. So there are no absolutes. Now, as Christians, we'd probably find that a bit problematic. Let me give you an example of this. Within utilitarian ethics, telling the truth then does not mean that it is an absolute good. It's not an absolute good thing to tell the truth. And in some cases, lying might be the morally correct action to take, depending on the end. So let me give you an example here. Nazi-occupied Europe in the Second World War. We had a situation where Jews were being persecuted and were being hunted down all the way throughout Europe in order to incarcerate them so that Nazis could do their inhumanitarian experiments on them and take them to the gas chambers or send them out to, to slave camps, hard labour camps. And so their lives, their very lives were in danger and there were many, many Christians right across Europe 
who had a moral dilemma. And the moral dilemma that they came across was the fact that the Bible tells me that I should be telling the truth. The Bible also tells me that I need to obey the authority, which happened to be the Nazis at the time. But the Bible also tells me that I should protect life. And so the moral dilemma they had was that those Christians who took Jews into their homes and hid them were breaking their uh, were breaking a, a moral ethic in themselves because they had to lie to the Nazis in order to protect the life of the people. And so what they did is they employed a utilitarian ethic. What is the greater good for the greatest number? To protect life or to give up that life so that I don't have to tell a lie? So in this case, if you look at it from a utilitarian perspective then to tell a lie in that circumstance or that situation is the right thing to do because it saves a life. And that's what utilitarian ethics does. Generally speaking, those who hold to a utilitarian view of, of ethics or moral decision-making uh, do so by equating the good, the greatest good, with the greatest pleasure. Therefore, we get actions that produce the greatest happiness and the least unhappiness, which isn't really a bad thing when you think about it. Really, if we're going to make decisions for people, on behalf of people, we want to make sure those kind of decisions end up with the most happiness for the most number of people and the least amount of happiness for, for the rest, or the minority. So it's not a bad thing necessarily. The only problem with that is that the idea of prioritising pleasure or happiness is hedonism. And hedonism is extremely egocentric. It's very much wrapped up in who I am and what I like and my likes and my not likes. And so what we find with a utilitarian ethic is when it's not pinned to some kind of external good, some kind of standard, it becomes very subjective. It comes down to whose decision is it that decides what's right and what's wrong? Who decides what's good for the majority and who decides what's not good for the others? Who is it that's able to make those kind of decisions? And is making sure that everybody happy the right thing to do? The American Constitution has that embedded in its, in its you know, the right to pursue happiness. There is a utilitarian ethic, a hedonistic aspect to the American Constitution which is constitutionally protected. Is it right? Is it wrong? The advantage of this kind of ethics is that because there is an absence of absolute right or wrong, in other words, there is no action which is inherently right and no action which is inherently wrong, you can actually arrive at an answer to any problem because you just shift the balance. All you do is you just weigh it up and say, well, you know, th this one looks as though it's going to be better than that one, so this is the right thing to do. So you never end up with a moral conflict because you can always arrive at an answer. That's the advantage of this kind of ethic. So you can end up with a situation where you can tell the truth or you can tell a lie, and depending on which one has the greater outcome, the greatest end, 
that becomes your moral choice. The problem is, is that uh, we can never find two rights. Sometimes that, that, you know, there's always a conflict somewhere, and that's the problem. So the problems with a utility ethic, as I've said, is who defines what's good? Whereabouts do we pin what's right and what's wrong? Is it my opinion? Is it your opinion? Is it the government's opinion? Is it somewhere else? Do we, where do we find it? Where do we peg that? We don't really know. So it all becomes very subjective. And, uh, and as I said, it becomes very egocentric. Question is, does the end really justify the means? Does it really? Surely the way that we go about doing something has much to say about the end of something. Surely the way that we interact with people rather than just weighing up, you know, very cerebrally, you know, with our brain, what's the right and the wrong thing to do? You know, I mean, when you hear about collateral damage, all right, in, in war, collateral damage is just a nice way of saying, well, we weighed up the odds and, and, and it was worth X amount of innocent people's lives to get the right outcome. Is the way that we go about it really something that we need to take into consideration? And what about the rights of the individual? The utilitarian ethic doesn't really take those into consideration. The rights of the individual person, because we're really more concerned with the rights of the many. And at the end of the day, are we really able to know everything there is about a situation? Do we really have all the facts at our fingertips? Do we really know all the ins and outs and we've got all the evidence put before us and are we really smart enough to be able to say, I can weigh all this up and I can see the end from the beginning and I know that it's going to turn out good. And I would say probably not. Probably not. Really, the only person who can be a utilitarian ethicist is God because it's only God that knows the end from the beginning and it's only him that knows all the permutations and it's only him that promises to you and I that all things that I do will work together for the good for you who love me. Only God has the power to do that. We as human beings don't. So there are lots of problems with a utilitarian ethic and a lot of problems with the way that society as a whole tends to view their ethics. So from there, we move to the next slide, which is deontological ethics. So this is another common way that, uh, that we use ethics. Deon is Greek for duty. So this is a duty ethic or moral absolutism. So here we are. We've, we're now saying that you know, we are going to say that there are some acts that we can do which are good in themselves and there are some that are evil in themselves. And we should make sure that however we act and the choices that we make are consistent with how we go about doing things as well. Now, this is the, this is the, the, uh, the intuitive ethic of most Christians. You know, we would all hold the Bible up as being a source of finding out what is right and what is wrong because we read the Word of God and we see what God says about it. So intuitively, we would move towards this kind of ethic. Moral absolutism holds the view 
that an action can be intrinsically good and can be intrinsically evil. Therefore, stealing is always wrong. Always. Regardless of if the end of stealing is good. So if you steal in order to feed your starving family so they don't die, if I hold to a moral absolute that stealing is always wrong, then I am breaking this particular code of ethics. Stealing, regardless of whether your family is starving, is always wrong. And we always apply an absolute ethic consistently because it's absolute. We absolutely do not break it. If you think about the application of this kind of moral ethic, you'll find that this was the kind of ethic which was about during the days of the convict ships. So in England at the time, they held to an absolute moral ethic. And that's why we ended up with convicts being sent to Australia for stealing a loaf of bread, because they were starving. Today, we would find that harsh. But in those days, that was the right thing to do, because that was the prevailing ethic of the day. That was the way society saw things. Being ethical, then, as far as moral absolution goes, means simply being obedient to God's word as it is set out in the Ten Commandments and the other commandments as we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what being morally ethical is from this position. The problem with moral absolutism is that it's fraught with problems. And we've already touched on those. We feel, we sense that sending somebody to Australia... Now, actually, that's probably a really good thing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, but, but to convict somebody and send them, you know, deport them for stealing a loaf of bread because they were starving, you know, we, 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 that doesn't sit right with us. Because that's actually, you know, we, 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 we inherently see that there are problems with this kind of ethic. The biggest problem that we have with this are when we find absolutes that become conflicting where we find two absolutes which seem to contradict one another. If I do one, then I break the other. And if I do the other, then I break the first one. And that's the biggest problem that we have with this. So honouring authorities in Nazi Europe and truth-telling become conflicting. Now I have a real problem. Because in the New Testament, it tells me that I should protect life and that I shouldn't lie. But the New Testament also tells me that I need to honour life and protect life. So I've got a problem. What do I do when my ethics are conflicting? What do I do? Do I choose the lesser of the two evils? Well, they can't be evils because they're moral absolutes. So I can't do that. Should one absolute be more absolute than another? That is illogical, Captain. I can't do that. Does one temporarily become not absolute in the presence of the other, and if so, which one? No, I can't do that. Because it's an absolute. And I got a problem. So, the moral absolutes which we find are usually found from the Old Testament. So, who is it that decides which moral absolutes in the Old Testament are the ones that ended at the cross 
And which are the ones that carried on through the cross into the New Testament? Some say all of them. Others would say none of them. And yet still some say some of them. So as a worldwide Christian church, we can't even quite decide on that one. So it's really problematic holding to an absolute ethical standard. For example, let's go to the next slide. Here we go. Leviticus 18.22 says, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. This is an abomination. So that's taken as an absolute standard. The problem is, is do we consistently apply these standards that we find in the Old Testament? And as I've said, who is it that decides what standard that we take and what standard we don't? Are we consistent in the way that we approach the Scripture? I have a, a letter here from a lady to a doctor who quoted to her this particular passage because she happened to be in a same-sex relationship. It's a bit of a pointed, tongue-in-cheek letter, but it... it, it I think it illustrates the problems that we have with how do we decide we use these absolutes and how do we apply them consistently. And the story, the letter goes like this. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from you and I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states that it to be an abomination. End of debate. That is a Christian slogan, which means shut up. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the specific laws and how best to follow them. When I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odour to the Lord, Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbours. They claim that the odour is not pleasing to them. How should I deal with this? I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as it suggests in Exodus 21.7. But in this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price? I know that I am allowed no contact with a woman while she is in her period of menstrual uncleanliness, Leviticus 15, 19 to 24. The problem is, how do I tell? I've tried asking, but most women take offence. I have a neighbour who insists on working on the Sabbath, Exodus 35, 2, and clearly states that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? A friend of mine feels that eating shellfish is an abomination. Leviticus 11.10. Is it a lesser abomination than homosexuality? I don't agree. Can you settle this? I know that, we ha that you have studied these things extensively, so I'm confident that you can help. Thank you again for reminding me that God's work is eternal and unchanging. Here we have a problem. We have a problem when we uncritically apply an absolutist ethic to everything, all people, all times, all places. Because there's always going to come across a point where we have conflicting absolutes. But we're also going to find places where we actually don't consistently apply Scripture. We inconsistently apply it. And this really shows us that we, there, there actually is a need within Christian ethics to do the work of theology. 
We do need to answer that. What are the laws which stopped? What are the laws which kept on? That isn't something that we have time to discuss in any kind of depth tonight. But that's something that we need to do. So we need to make sure that we apply things consistently. And do you know what? When we actually have a look at the Bible, and we actually have a look at the life of Jesus, the Bible itself and Jesus seem to not hold to a moral absolute. Jesus opposed this kind of legalistic approach to right and wrong in the life of Jesus himself. If the laws were to be interpreted contextually, this is what we see Jesus doing. When Jesus was confronted with an issue, where there was an issue of the law, he didn't imply the letter of the law, but he looked at the context in which it was happening. You see, if absolutism was the right way for us to live, which incidentally was the argument of the Pharisees, that's what they were arguing for, then Jesus would have stoned the woman caught in adultery because Jesus would have been bound to apply the law absolutely. But he didn't. He applied it contextually. He had a look at the situation and he applied wisdom to that situation. And in the end, where are your accusers? I don't see them. Go and sin no more. That is not the way the Old Testament law prescribes how to deal with somebody caught in adultery. So we see Jesus applying things contextually. Remember when the sheet was lowered down in front of Peter? And this was the point where, where God declares all food to be clean. So there's no unclean food and no clean food. Well, if food that was unclean at one point now becomes clean, then that means that it was never an absolute in the first place. Otherwise, God's just broken his own law. It was never meant to be an absolute. Even in the Old Testament, we don't find the application of the law absolutely. Remember when David went into the temple and he was hungry and he took the showbread? That was only for the priests. David was not a priest. But that was okay for him to do that because the law was there to give life and was there to serve man, not man to serve the law. So even in the Old Testament, we don't find the law being used as absolute. But it is applied contextually. So, having said that, we now need to start working towards what is a Christian ethic then? What is a Christian ethic? What does that mean? And like I said, we don't have time to fully develop this, but we will make some inroads towards it and we will have something that we can go away and apply after tonight. So what we're going to have a look at is the law of love. Now, this is not the only piece of the jigsaw, but it is a big piece. So we need to get a hold of this one if we don't get a hold of any other. So, St. Augustine, great saint, said, love and do what you like. If we, apply, if we apply the law of love, we can pretty much do anything because we're loving people in every action that we make, in every choice that we make. Jesus said in John 15 verse 17, my command is this, love one another. He also says 
You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the prophets' demands are based on these two commandments. Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. Now, when the expert in the law came to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the best law? What's the highest law that I can possibly follow? Why was an expert in the law asking that question? I think it's because he'd already run up against moral absolutes. He'd already found that in within the law itself, he's probably found a situation where, you know what, there are two laws here which I cannot obey consistently both at the same time. So Jesus, what's the higher law? What's the one that supersedes this one? And Jesus replies, love. Because love fulfills the whole law. And he went away happy. Paul also states in Romans 13, 8, Owe nothing to anyone except your obligation, duty, this is a deontological ethic, your duty to love one another. So Paul here is saying that the law of love is an obligation, it's a duty, it's an absolute ethic. If you love your neighbour, you'll fulfil the requirements of God's law. And in Galatians 5 and verse 6, he says, for when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, there is no benefit in being circumcised or uncircumcised, applying the prescriptions of the law. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Faith expressing itself in love. Love is really important. And so this becomes the, one of the big building blocks for putting together and piecing together what does a Christian ethic look like. In 1966, Joseph Fletcher published a book called Situation Ethics, The New Morality. In it, he argues that one moral absolute, there's only one moral absolute that can be applied consistently to every situation, and that is the biblical imperative command to love. That is the only moral absolute all the others are guidelines only one that can be consistently applied to every situation and must be applied to every situation that is the law of love all other moral principles help in our decision making but they must first be subject to the law of love always so a summary of joseph fletcher's situation ethics is that there is nothing intrinsically good in itself except love. Only love is intrinsically good in and of itself. Everything else is just a shade of grey. Therefore, whatever is the loving thing to do in any given situation is the right thing to do. Whatever the loving thing to do in any given situation. So, you can have a situation where lying to save a life, so long as it's done from a motive of love, becomes the right thing to do. The ruling norm of Christianity, of our life as believers, followers of Jesus, there's only one norm, one normal, one thing that never changes. Guess what that is? All right. It's love. Nothing else. 
Because it's only love that fulfills the law. If there is a conflict between love and the law, the commandments may be broken for love's sake. And we see that in Jesus' example. Love always wills your neighbor's good, whether we like them or not. Love is not woolly and it's not fluffy. Love is not subjective because love is an attitude. It is not a feeling. So the command to love fulfills the law and it's got very, very little to do with how I feel about somebody. I may not like them, but I am commanded to love them. Only love's end, only a loving end justifies any means in an ethic of love. So when God sent his son to the cross, which was a horrific end, or a horrific means of killing somebody, it was justified because the loving outcome was mankind's reconciliation to the Father. So the loving outcome of sending Jesus to the cross was the fact that you and I can enjoy salvation and enjoy God's presence forever, which is Christian hedonism. Because we get to enjoy God forever. So joy is at an end. There is joy everlasting as an end. Love's decisions are made situationally. They are not made prescriptively through predetermined laws and rules. Because some rules are inadequate at dealing with the unique complexities of a situation. It doesn't matter how good your rules are. They're just, you're just never going to find a place where we can apply them consistently. They're just not flexible enough. This is what we find in moral absolutism. There's no flexibility at all in moral absolutism. But we do find flexibility in love because we take each situation as being unique. And we look at it from a loving perspective. And we weigh up our choices. And we apply what is the loving thing to do and look at what's going to be the loving end of that. So, there's one step, one step only. We haven't even talked about a whole load of other things which make up a Christian ethic. But that is one step that we can do. So we can begin to apply an ethic of love in our everyday situations from here on in. We can take some practical steps towards that. So what I want to do now is I want to apply situational ethics to discipleship. What does that look like? What does that look like in real terms, where the rubber hits the road? I'm not going to be picking on transformations tonight. Is that okay? All right. A situation ethic goes a long way to answering our panel question of how do we apply the tolerance intolerance of our Christian walk. Let's have a look at how it applies to discipleship. Holding each other to account, holding each other accountable for our actions, things that we say, things that we do, is good discipleship practice because the outcome is loving and redemptive. So we know the end is good. We know the end is loving. So it's a good thing to do. And it results in greater Christ-likeness. It results in you and me becoming more like Jesus. So is the result a good result? Yeah. Is the result a loving result? Yeah. 
So it's a good thing to do. Holding each other to account. Therefore, you can confront your neighbour when their actions are unethical. Like Peter did, sorry, like Paul did to Peter over eating with the Gentiles. As long as love is the motive. We have a look at Galatians 2.12. Paul writes this, when he first arrived, he, that's Peter, ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, it's always James's fault, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Could always blame somebody else. It's always worth it. So um, when those people, Peter, wouldn't eat with Gentiles anymore because he was afraid of the criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. So what we have is that Peter is convinced that the gospel is for the Gentiles. Peter is convinced that the cross levels the playing field, that there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer Gentile and Jew. There's no longer people of God are separated by their ethnicity. But that all people now can become believers in Jesus Christ. He was absolutely convinced of that. Except when a bunch of Jews came over who hold on to the moral absolutes of the law and said that you Gentiles need to be circumcised. (laughs) So Peter separates himself and won't eat with them anymore. And so Peter now is displaying a moral dilemma. And Paul, being a good, spirit-filled Christian who happens to be a good discipleship mate pulls Peter up by his proverbial socks and points out his duplicity. So we can do that. Love does that because love seeks the loving end. And if he'd have allowed Peter to continue doing that, we might still find today that Jews don't eat with Gentiles. Well, actually, they don't. But, you know, Christian Jews... Professing Christian Jews might still consider the fact that they are more holy than we are, which, of course, is not true. So to be a good disciple means that we can hold people to values. We can hold people to standards. It isn't unloving to do that. It's actually a very loving act to do that. So here is where I come to pick on the transformation slot because you guys have got a booking system don't you? All right. And you love it, don't you? And all the transformations people said. (laughs) All right. You love the booking system. For those of you who haven't been to transformations and don't know what the booking system is, if somebody does something that isn't right, they get booked and they get consequences. They get consies. They have to go and do hours right, to make up for that, okay? Now, is that holding you to account? Yeah. Is that a discipleship process? Is it a loving thing to do? Yeah. So it's not the pain in the butt you thought it was. It's actually the loving thing to do, to do this, because it is a loving system to hold one another to account, Why is it the loving thing to do? Because it results in consequential thinking. It forces you to think about the end, the goal, the telos. It makes you think about, if I do this, what's going to be the result of that? And is that going to be a good result for me? Is that going to be a good result for the people that I'm in the house with? 
is it going to be a good result for anybody? So it, it brings you to a place of consequential thinking. So it's a good system. It's a loving system. Because the outcome is, ends up with a loving thing to do. So long as when you book, you do it out of a motive of love. When you revenge book... It is not motivated by love. Therefore, it is the wrong thing to do. Not booking because of fear of what others might say or think is falling into the same trap that Peter fell into with the Gentiles. It's unethical. So not booking because of fear is not loving your neighbour. So next time you get put on a contract to do five bookings a day, you'd better get your love on. We can have the band back. We can have the band back. The law of love. So as I said, situation ethics or the law of love is only a very small part. It's a, it's a big part, actually, of moving towards a Christian ethic. And, and, and I mean that. We're only moving towards a Christian ethic because we haven't even mentioned theology yet. We haven't mentioned really about how do we rightly divide the Word of God to arrive at what is the right thing to do and the right way to live. We haven't even discussed what does love mean because there's lots of different kinds of love. So we need to have a look at that in order to find out what the loving thing to do is. We haven't yet touched on the ministry of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit gives us the mind of Christ so that we can find out what the right thing to do is who empowers us to do the right thing and to make the right choices. These are all things that work towards a Christian ethic. So the law of love and the application of the law of love is really just a step in the right direction. But it's one that will help you in being able to hold up what the Word of God says with conviction, but also making sure that you do it with loving motive. Always with a loving motive, never a condemning one never a critical one and we never, never moralise with people because that actually is about judgmentalism but when we have a motive of love that we can genuinely love the other person we can bring loving correction now I'm not going to have an altar call tonight instead I'm going to give you some homework so what I want you to do after tonight, we're going to sing a song and we're going to finish with some worship. What I want you to do is I want you to go away and I want you to think about this. I want you to think about some of these things that have been spoken to tonight. And I want you maybe to start going away and applying them, especially to apply the law of love. Think about things. Think about some of those decisions. Think about maybe some of the ways you've been and begin to apply. Stay tuned for another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church.